0: Welcome to another podcast from the Fleming Foundation. This podcast comes to you in our series, From Under the Rubble. Uh, The host this time, I'm pretending to be the host. The real host is Mm. Rex Scott, who has staged a coup d'etat at the Fleming Foundation headquarters. I've taken over because I want to
1: know stuff. (laughs) I
0: want to know the stuff that I want to know for a change. Anyway, ignorance truly is bliss. Hello.
1: (laughs) Thank you for that. Because we've requested it, we've had a couple of people ask questions which will be asked today of the doctor remember if you've got a question for the doctor send us an email or
0: go to the website and yeah uh, the easiest way is just to go to the one of the recent uh, po- one of these podcasts and say Mike my, my question is whatever and then we'll uh, if it's worthy if it passes the smell <laughs> test worthy. we will we'll uh, we may take it up
1: all right let's get right into this now you have met many people world leaders authors scholars who was the most memorable person you've ever met?
0: As you as you know, Rex, I don't make lists, and I and I don't like superlatives. It's like say, who's the most beautiful woman you've ever met? Mm-hmm. Who is the uh, what's the funniest joke you've ever heard? Yeah, what's close. the what's the most beautiful uh, tune? But um, I, I there are lots of people I've known reasonably well who were uh, in their own way uh, magnificent uh, human characters. Mm-hmm. The first one, probably, that I knew well was my own dissertation director, uh, Douglas Young, hmm. or Douglas Cuthbert Calhoun Young, to give him his uh, full name. Douglas was a, uh, on the one hand, he was a well-known classical scholar who edited an edition of the Greek poet Theognis, But on the other hand, you see, he wrote a book called Chasing an Ancient Greek, hmm. which was a kind of piece of memoir writing, about running around the world, looking for manuscripts of Theognis, the people he met, the things he did. And it, it, it reflected the fact that, while he was a very good technical scholar, uh, Greek grammar, Greek manuscripts, he knew his stuff. He was also something of a bon vivant, a raconteur, a troublemaker. Bon vivant? Good liver. Oh, okay. You know, uh, bon In vivant. other words, he, he was somebody who enjoyed life. He was a larger than life character. I think he was about six foot seven. Hmm. He was about the height of Dennis Rodman, as I understand, Hmm. at least uh, whom uh, Donald Trump recently said he was short, but he was a great rebounder. So I I guess in Trump's world, six foot seven is short. Short, yeah. Hmm. But. he was very tall. He was so tall that he couldn't be drafted into the British Army in World War II because they couldn't get uniforms, and they had a, they had a limit, like 6'6", six, 6'5", six, six, whatever the sure. limit was. But he went down to the uh, enlistment headquarters and rejected the right of what he called the English Parliament, the English government, to draft a Scottish national. He was a, Scot- a Scottish nationalist, and uh, they thought it was not in the interest of Scotland to get involved in World War II, let the English fight their own bloody war. Hmm. He was put in jail and held there for some time, and he had a he had bad stomach condition, and he lost, uh, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 pounds, hmm. and it was, they thought he was on the verge of death. And so they had to let him out. I think he was imprisoned at Edinburgh Castle, where in those days they used that, unless I'm wrong, for a military prison. And when he got out, a procession of bagpipers, Scottish nationalists, patriots, poets, came to greet him, to serenade him on his release. And leading it was the man who is often regarded as the finest Scottish poet of that age, his real name was Edward Grieve, but he wrote under the name Hugh McDiarmid. He was a very strong communist, leftist, uh, oh. radical. But McDiarmid, uh, that was his bad quality. Mac, uh, McDiarmid's good quality was his love of Scotland and his love of Scottish traditions and Scottish literature. Yeah. And Douglas Young, uh, certain, he, was, he was a Scottish nationalist. He was a great classical scholar. He was also a poet of some merit. And if you look in the Oxford book of Scottish poetry, of Scottish verse, mm-hmm. you'll find a poem or two of his uh, there near the end. And he was a historian. He wrote a book on Edinburgh in the age of Sir Walter Scott, mm-hmm. which is both literary, political, social history. But he wrote a lot of history. He was a, he was a, a wonderful man, a kind man, who was mostly misunderstood, I think, by his students and... Uh, fellow faculty members I can remember once being at a at a party he ventured to give an opinion about some point in classics and the 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 man who was to become chairman of the department said well we always know you're full of opinions and uh, Douglas who had a he had a chair a named professorship a named chair so he he outranked everybody in that sense because he made more money and he said I I have very few opinions by which he meant it is not an opinion when you research a subject and you come to a rational conclusion about hmm. the facts. And I've, I think of this often because there are some un, unwise, ill-natured people who have accused me of being opinionated. <gasps> I, I, I have tastes. Everyone has tastes, mm-hmm. of course. But if, if I say something about Lincoln or Pericles or the Emperor Augustus or Julius Caesar or Napoleon, it's it's not simply an opinion it's a position which I've spent years thinking out, researching, and coming to a cl- conclusion. That doesn't mean my conclusion's correct, mm. but it does mean it's, a, it's more than an opinion. And partly, you know, I, I think uh, this was partly um, Douglas's influence. He was really a very a fine man, unfailingly kind and polite, mm. putting up with fools constantly, as you do in the academy, and yet seeming to rise above it all with a, with a cheerful good nature
1: how long did he spend in prison then do you know i think a, a couple of years wow and so then all of these people were waiting for him because they respected yeah. his stand about what he was doing
0: yeah and he was already a well established well he was a young man by that point i mean he's probably you know in his early probably in his early 20s oh. but uh but still you know uh society traditional societies are are tend to be coherent everybody who is anybody knows each other Mm -hmm. and so he already knew people and he was making his way as a as a poet and as a as a classical scholar and he excelled without reaching the top of any one of his interests he did good work and excelled in each of them and he had this wonderful uh cheerful rational skepticism about things which is a very much a scottish trait if you've read uh, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, remember in the third volume, there's a, a Scottish rationalist atheist with uh, with Ransom and the others. The rationalist Scott has to accept all this, but at the end, well, I'm not so sure about that because th- this is this is the way to. It's one of their great qualities. It's why the the great greatest Scottish philosopher is David Hume, a thoroughgoing skeptic. If you presented Young with the revealed truth of current Theory, For example, the revealed truth that uh, Homer was an illiterate improviser, and this could be shown by mm. X, Y, and Z, he would then turn around and find all the evidence on the other side. Mm. And similarly, like one of the tricks at Homer is they, they, uh, what they call formulas. The poetry is formulaic, that formula. means it's, in other words, like swift-footed Achilles is a formula. So they've really pushed this theory to the ultimate, and the idea is that Homer couldn't read or write. Well, if he couldn't write, then how do, how do we have the poem? So obviously there was an oral tradition, but Douglas would just take this and debunk it by showing how there were formulas in Livy. So does this mean Livy can't write? Or my favorite, he gave a lecture once called To, to Hell with Homer or To Hell with Page, Page being Sir Dennis Page, the Regis Professor of Greek at, uh, at Cambridge. And you know, Page had tried to show that certain parts of the Odyssey, especially the, the trip to the underworld, were not written by Homer because he found all these stylistic differences. So mm-hmm. Young, he would take a, a Paradise Lost by Milton and then take Milton's minor poems and do the same thing. So word searches, structural of, of the language, and he'd show that the same writer had not written both Works oh boy. well. This is scientific skepticism. If you're going to say that these are the following reasons why these passages in, in the Odyssey are not written by the author of the rest of the work, let's test. Let's take a parallel. Let's mm-hmm. take a test case. Sure. And he proved over. And people got furious. They would get angry as if he was being insulting or challenging revealed religion, when all he was doing was showing the holes in the methodology. I must say, when I started my dissertation, he thought I was all wet in the direction I was going, but I could still do good work along the way. All and wet?
1: What do you mean? Why, what, what direction were you going? Well,
0: I was proving that there was historical evidence for our understanding of Greek lyric poetry, which is musical. And we don't have musical text, so how can it be? And mm. I showed you could find it. In the in the layout of medieval Greek manuscripts. Okay. And there was a whole theory to show this was untrue, and I debunked every aspect of the theory hmm. And by the time I was about getting going, he, became, he I converted him. He became uh-huh. completely because he was open to reason. And if he had lived to be one hundred and twenty, I think he would have still been open to, to reason and uh, skepticism. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he was started worrying about his health and his heart, so he took up running. Was dead in a few months.
1: Oh no! Heart
0: dropped dead of a heart attack, dressed in his running outfit. Oh boy! So just a little warning, pe- people might contemplate the career of Dr. Jim Fix, the great apostle of running, who also wow, well, he died in his forties uh, running. Oops! It's, uh, running is I don't think a really good hobby to take up. The facts are right there and not
1: <laughs> not easily to debunk the the actuality of it. Now. We had a question from, um, as I said before, uh, from, I was going to say a listener, uh, but uh, what would you call people
0: that follow a website? Well, well listen, but also somebody who listened to this podcast. There you uh, go. So they are podcast. listeners. So listener, yeah. listener, subscriber. Listener and reader.
1: Um, and he wanted to know... What you thought about Reagan, uh, President Reagan? What are your thoughts on President Reagan?
0: I was, you know, mildly enthusiastic during the uh, the late 70s. Reagan talked what seemed to be common sense. We're engaged in a struggle for global power with the Soviet Empire. Mm-hmm. It was time for us to stand up and assert ourselves. Uh, I also was uh, rather skeptical about the Cold War because the, the Cold War seemed to justify. Taking away uh, civil liberties from American citizens, I didn't see why we had to imitate the USSR in order to defeat them. But I was still—I voted for Reagan. Mm. I thought that uh, although he didn't exactly represent the things that most interested me, nonetheless his positions on on free enterprise, for example, and uh, cutting down the size of government, standing up to the expansion of the Soviet government—all of these things we were, were pretty good. And he my main reason I had for not wanting to vote for him was that he was an actor. Mm. Acting is not an honorable profession, especially for a man. It teaches you to be somebody you are not over and over and over. Oh, I, I think this leads to moral confusion. It's also I don't think a sign of a good character that you want to be in the movies. There are very few people you really want to know who are movie actors or uh, or stage actors for that hmm. matter. And even people who are doing Shakespeare in live theater are often are often egomaniacs, people very conf- very confused about the the, uh, the important issues that uh, uh, face humanity. I see. So I figured uh, some trashy Hollywood star who made mostly not very good movies. Um, he one with of a donkey once, didn't he? No, no. Francis? You're, you're thinking, the Francis, they, they were the, that was Donald O'Connor. It was a monkey movie. He did make a monkey movie, bringing up Bonzo. <laughs> but so did, so did Cary Grant, after oh. all. But his his big movie with King King's Row was a fine movie, and the mm. New Rockney story was okay. He made some okay movies. He was also in uh, the Santa Fe Trail. A pretty wooden oh, yeah. actor. He wasn't to me very interesting, but but I but I wouldn't have voted for John Wayne either oh. or, or James Stewart or or Clint any Eastwood. of them. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't vote. For Clint, oh, Clint okay. Eastwood. has many a screw loose. It's very obvious from yes. uh, looking at his performance. But so I voted for him and I, I was disenchanted within a year. He he was unable to stand up to the special interests who controlled the Republican Party. Mm. And so, you know, when he was uh, campaigning for the nomination, looked likely to get it. Uh, big business interests, had a little, they had a little meeting, and they said, we're not going to give any money to the Republican Party if your nominee is Reagan. Now, according to Murray Rothbard, who had good sources on this, and, and others, but my original source was was Rothbard, the great libertarian uh, philosopher, mm-hmm. Rothbard claims that they had a meeting in which Reagan said, look, I've been shilling for General Electric on television. I will always support big business interests. And, in fact, he did. So he spent his. He supported free trade, which is in the interest of multinational business, but not in the interest of the American people. He was very. He had. We had a huge, wasteful uh, military buildup. Many people credit the collapse of the Soviet Empire to that. I, I myself don't. The, my, my view is it was a, it was a, waiting to fall down in the first wind. It was a well, house. Oh wait a of, minute! It was he, house he of made cars. the
1: claim? The big, Gorbachev tear down that wall. So you know, wasn't that awesome? I mean, he he at least he was the, was he a man in the right place at the right time?
0: Then is what you're saying? I I I, th- I think he I think he got lucky. I think he was there. And by the way, I think standing up to the Russians was the right thing to do. Okay. I'm just saying that uh, from people I knew in Eastern Europe in the 1970s and 80s, they all said they all believed that that uh, Russia had become a paper tiger, that no one believed in communists, including the leaders of the party, hmm. and that, that the whole thing was co- collapsing under the, the weight of its own contradictions. Look, Marxism is based on such notions as we need social, political, and economic equality. That, that's impossible. That's like, saying I can make uh, gold equal to water. It's all. It's based on all sorts of ridiculous. Things, just as our own system is based on ideas of uh, the equality of all people, men and women should have the same function. Well, then, what
1: place does quality equality have? I mean, we hear a lot of that. We talk about uh, gender equality yeah. and uh, it's, it's, old it's, people and people who have, uh, you know, certain ailments. Doesn't everybody, in a certain way, I mean, shouldn't it all be pretty equal?
0: No, absolutely not. People are not equal, and therefore their their privileges, his rights, and and so if, if somebody's been a bum all his life, should he have e- equal access to medical care as some hardworking person who served his country? I mean. I'm, I, I'm not saying we should, we should kill the worthless. I'm just simply saying if you want to smoke, drink, take heroin, and, and weigh 400 pounds, you pay for it. I don't I think see. I should pay for it. All right. And if you, have, if you have a national health care system, by the way, such as we increasingly do, this is inevitable. So in England, they're talking about cutting off cancer treatment for smokers, and this will happen. And the elderly are going to be subject to euthanasia because there's no other way to run it. I'm totally opposed to euthanasia. Yeah. I'm totally opposed to the government having any control over our life. Sure. But the government is going, when, the, when it's the government's money, be, which they steal from us, it will, it will be true. So anyway, Reagan in general, mm-hmm. I think, was, he was clever. He was glib, although, you know, he used to walk around with one-liners and jokes in his pocket to remind you, you know, so he would, he, he could, uh, because that was his style. Sure. I remember jokes.
1: in the debate there was a question about his age, and I think whoever was running against him yeah. said, "What about the age situation?" And he said something to the effect of, "Well, uh, we won't hold that against you." Yes, that's right.
0: That's that. Was... He was very good, you know. When, his, when he got shot, here's a case where he did not have a, a, a joke prepared. Yeah, he got he got shot. He's lying there. They're coming up, and he and he looked up and he said, "I hope the doctors are Republicans." <laughs> did he actually take a bullet? Oh yeah. Ah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, t- he took him. And uh, it was this crazed person whose parents were friends of George H.W. Bush. Oh, it was uh, it was uh, a little strange. But anyway, I-, I don't dislike Reagan. And Reagan once even sort of gave me a blurb for Chronicles. Mm. and uh, But, you know, he did that for a lot of people. Yeah, I think he was pr- probably a, a, a decent enough man. But the claims that he was an extraordinary president who changed America, I used to say to people, well... You know, when Jimmy Carter was president, if you had said that homosexuals enjoy all the regular rights of American citizens and have special claims to make sure their rights are protected, liberal Democrats would have laughed at you. When Reagan's vice president, George H.W. Bush, uh, stepped out of office, no Republican in his right mind would have dared say in public that there are not special rights that belong to homosexuals. Mm. So this is progress. Uh. Twelve years of Reagan-Bush and the homosexual rights industry had become institutionalized within the Republican Party Mm -hmm. and the conservative movement. So as as far as I could see, everything which conservatives had said they believed in in the 50s, 60s and 70s was destroyed in the Reagan-Bush years. So if you're I, I do not regard myself as any kind of belonging to any movement. But if you have anything like conservative instincts, you have to look back and see that time as a disaster.
1: What about Reaganomics? Wasn't I, I'm not sure I understand what Reaganomics is, but wasn't it obviously was named after him? What's the principle there?
0: Well, a lot of it goes back to Arthur Laffer and the Laffer Curve. The idea is, if you cut the more government spending you cut, it will cause a rebound in the economy, and you'll end up actually making more in tax money. Hmm. Now, some of this actually is quite old and of distinguished lineage in economic theory. The trouble is the Reaganites, and I've known a number of people who worked in the Reagan administration, different both in the Justice Department, Mm -hmm. White House advisors, et cetera, and uh, they will all tell you about the Reagan economic miracle. And when you press that, they will say, well, he slowed the growth of government spending. Really? That's it? Slowed, slowed. the growth? He didn't cut it back. Oh. He, 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 didn't, he, he slowed the growth temporarily. And then, of course, it went on, a, went on a rampage shortly afterwards. So if that's the best the conservative president could do to slow the growth of evil, mm. well, then you might as well not bother to try a little bit I know about Reagan personally, although, you know, he was a weird person. He and his wife consulted astrologers yeah, their I whole that. time. Yeah, heard that. That didn't make sense to me. And a Carol Reiter, the newspaper astrologer, was a close friend. And Reiter and others have said that he never made a major political decision without checking with an astrologer, without seeing what the stars oh, say. Boy. Now this is paganism yeah. of the worst touch, the lowest kind of paganism, but it's forbidden to Christians. You know, Reagan never went to church. The idea that Reagan was a was he was he was a nominal, I don't know, Presbyterian, Protestant, okay. general Protestant was he pro life? I think so. He said he was. Because, okay. So again with an actor you could put on anything. He didn't do a single thing to restrict abortion, but then neither has any other pro-life politician. I think, I think the life issue, this is something we could talk about in the future. I think that the pro-life movement has accomplished less than nothing. They have not succeeded in slowing the rate of judicial murder through abortion and euthanasia in America. We're going to leave that one alone for now because that's a hot topic.
1: Now, see if you can guess, who I am to answer the next question? Never, never, never give up. <laughs> isn't it perfect? It's spot on, isn't it? Bugs Bunny. Oh, gee. <laughs> Winston Churchill. Somebody asked, "What do you think about Winston Churchill?" Yeah.
0: Um, you know, I grew up liking Winston Churchill. I read, when I was 12 years old, his entire, what, five-volume history of the English-speaking people. Mm. I read his book on uh, on World War II. I even once read his incredibly long book on his great ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough. Hmm. He's a good pro-stylist, uh, a very wily politician, yeah. completely unprincipled and unscrupulous. Well, it would why? be very hard to say... You know, what did Winston believe throughout his career or even uh, for a 10-year period? He was constantly changing parties, therefore changing ideology. But he once said, you know, to betray a party once looks like treason, but to change parties four times, as I have done, requires genius. Oh boy! So he was a he was a treacherous, unreliable person, a typical product of the of the British aristocracy. As I said, he's a direct a direct descendant of John Churchill, who became the Duke of Marlborough. And how did he do that? Well, you know, he he owed much of his career to the King James II. And when they engineered a coup, they wanted to bring in this Dutch bisexual uh, king, uh, mm-hmm. who was uh, married to James's daughter. So it's one of the worst acts of familial betrayal. The daughter, her husband, who is also, by the way, a nephew of the king, Hmm. they overthrow him on ridiculous grounds that his wife had given birth to a child smuggled in on a warming pan because it would be a Catholic heir to the English throne. And so they have the so-called glorious revolution and John Churchill and other top English officers betrayed their oaths betrayed the man who had befriended them. Now admittedly James II was an utter fool in my view, but that's oh, another story. The yeah. thing is John Churchill got where he got by being a cheat, knave, a liar and a man of uh, whose level of military talent and political talent was a, was a, a thing of genius. Oh. And I think that uh, Winston uh, revered his ancestor with good reason. He was not the military genius his ancestor was, but he was a political genius. He was a man of considerable courage. He had great nerve. And when a crisis, which could have been avoided, but when the crisis came, which partly uh, people like Churchill had helped to bring on, that is Hmm. World War II, when the crisis came... He was resolute, resourceful, and as a public orator, he was absolutely brilliant. So I give very high marks to to Winston as a uh, as one of the great men of the 20th century. No. Uh, not a very good man. Not a man I particularly uh, want to know. His whole family has has consisted of people of very dubious personal lives. Evelyn Wall was a friend of Winston's son, Randolph, and. And some of uh, Waugh's anecdotes about having to bunk with Randolph during World War II are very funny because, mm. because Randolph, like his father, was drunk all the time. <laughs> but really, Winston, during World War II, I think he drank like two quarts of brandy a day. Well, it was a very stressful job. <laughs> <laughs> he, drank, he drank two quarts of brandy every, every day of his adult life. Wasn't
1: he a catalyst? Wasn't he a, a lightning rod for the English people? They needed something. They were floundering. Yeah, I, I, we're going yeah. to get beat. I, beat I good. I, I, I mean, I
0: agree with that entirely. And you, see, this is why we needed a bulldog, as it were. I don't side either. I have I have two friends who, who have uh, taken opposite positions. One is a very fine uh, scholar, John Lukacs, and Lukacs, the great admirer of Churchill, mm-hmm. and he's uh, one of the best historians of uh, our lifetime. Hungarian, very grateful to the Allies who prevented Hitler from creating a European empire. Okay. And so you start with that position, and you see how Churchill played really an indispensable role in the victory. Pat Buchanan, a popular writer, mm-hmm. and Buchanan looks at Churchill strictly as a, a crooked warmonger who did everything he could to drag the United States into World War II. Hmm. Now, both sides are correct. Some people who hate Churchill... And they they quit reading a magazine I was editing because I would allow John Lukacs to praise Churchill. I said, look, the whole point to a magazine, to any enterprise, to what we're doing, is that there are different possible points of view. Wow. And if John Lukacs, mm-hmm. who is a, a wonderful historian, reputable, the only so-called conservative who could get his books reviewed in the New York Times and was writing for Harper's and the New Yorker and things like that. Really, if John Lukács doesn't have a right to an opinion, who does? Okay. So I happen to disagree with his overall interpretation, but on the other hand... Can you give us a brief idea of where he was going with the positive things about uh, Churchill? Well, his decisiveness, he had great political clarity, and once it was clear that that England could not stay out of a war, then the thing to do was to go in both feet all the way and to drag the U.S. in. Now, fortunately... Fortunately. See, I'm I'm not talking now as an American. I'm just being objective like a Martian. Fortunately, he had a good American friend who had been secretary of the Navy, Franklin Roosevelt. Oh. So it was very easy to snooker the dimwitted FDR into getting us into a war with Germany. Now, I understand people who argue that this was a necessity, that uh, defeating Hitler was more important than anything we could do. Agreed. In my view, defeating Hitler and, and empowering Stalin was not the best thing we could have done. And hmm. uh, People say, well, that's the price you have to pay. I'm not here to argue that point. That's, that's for another time. Okay. I'm just saying that I can look at Churchill and see how, he, like Napoleon and like others, there are certain countries have required certain powerful, clear-minded, egomaniacal, self-interested men Whoa. like Napoleon and Churchill. Right. So I mean I could talk all day about, you know, the Churchill's indebtedness, driving and to take in certain positions. I know. The fact that he switched sides over and over. I also think by the way that Neville Chamberlain, who did his best to maintain peace in Europe, was not a fool, was mm-hmm. not a pacifist. I do think that probably with more effective group statesmanship with America, et cetera, involved, we might have stopped it. On the other hand, once it became inevitable, you needed the right man to fight the war. I don't like Churchill. I wouldn't want to have known Churchill. Mm. But I have to say, grudgingly, I have to have a lot of respect for him. Agreed.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much for answering these questions. And you've answered a couple questions from the people who are enjoying the website, Fleming Foundation. And of course, this is a product of Fleming Foundation, the show called Under the Rubble with Dr. Thomas Fleming and myself, Rex Scott. Thank you for listening. Can't wait for the next one.